well, one year in elementary school, uh, my class put on a little musical theater production. It was an adaptation or a kiddie version of The Music Man. Has anyone ever seen The Music Man? 76 trombones led the big parade. Good. Well, good. I was, I'm impressed, actually. Well, I wasn't cast in the leading role of the show. I wasn't Harold Hill. Another kid in my class was. I wasn't even cast as one of the supporting characters. I was one of the background characters. A blink-and-you'll-miss-it extra member of the chorus in the standout role of salesman number nine. At least I wasn't a tree, I guess. I actually had one line, and boy was I proud of that one line, my moment to shine. I can still remember it all these years later. In the opening scene of the show, I have a slide to to represent it. Me, along with salesmen's one through eight, we're all sitting in a train car, and we're all supposed to be pretending to read newspapers when we realize Harold Hill is on board. And I was supposed to blurt out from behind my newspaper, and the opening number, Hill... That was it. That was my one line. (laughs) Hill? Thank you. Thank you very much. Thank you. I still... Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Amen, right? All right. No one remembers a silly little inconsequential one-line part in an elementary school musical, I guess, except me. (laughs) But silly little seemingly inconsequential one-line parts in God's story, I don't think are easily forgotten. On the contrary, when I read the Gospels, I find that they tend to have staying power. In fact, they arguably steal the show most of the time, especially when you're you're carrying some memorable props with you. What's funny to me is that those with the smallest of parts, the shortest of screen time in many of the stories of Jesus— have the potential to upstage or outshine some of the supporting cast. They don't have top billing, but they leave an impression, and they have staying powers in our collective memories when we retell the story, and one such character, I believe, is in our reading this morning. Now, the story of the feeding the 5,000 is one of the stories I wager you've heard before. Probably you don't need me to spoon-feed it to you. Your Sunday school teachers probably already did that, probably better than I could, because it's probably a pretty popular story. You can't miss it if you read any of the four canonical Gospels, because it's the only miracle of Jesus to appear in all four. Transfiguration, only in the synoptics, not John. Jesus walking on water seems pretty impressive. Luke doesn't have that story. This story, of all the memorable things Jesus did, this story, the feeding of the five thousands, seems to hold a place of prominence above the rest in the eyes of the gospel writers who preserve this story multiple ways and in their own way. Apparently, it left a lasting impression on them as a key moment in Jesus' life. And so the way the synoptics tell it, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, the crowds are said to have followed Jesus and his disciples. They've circumnavigated the Sea of Galilee to keep up with him, despite Jesus and his companions' best efforts to withdraw from them. Hard for a celebrity like Jesus to get some privacy away from the masses, just like T-Swizzle cannot attend a football game for her boyfriend, Maato, without knowing about it. You guys didn't laugh as hard. That was a good joke. You didn't laugh as hard. I'm, I'm disappointed. I was really proud of that joke. 
Well, as is run-of-the-mill for Jesus when he sees the crowds, he can't help himself but feel compassion for them like a sheep without shepherd. So he heals their sick, and he begins to teach them. At some point later in the day, the disciples start feeling hungry. Maybe they start hearing the rumblings in their stomachs gradually crescendoing, and they feel the pressure to somehow cue Jesus to quit preaching so that everyone can leave and get something to eat. Many of you are thinking the same thing right now. Jesus turns to them and says the famous line, you give them something to eat. And one wonders if Jesus had a playful, almost mischievous smirk on his face when he said it, because he knew what he was doing. The disciples understandably begin to panic. They begin emptying their pockets, looking for any loose change they might have, because what Jesus is asking for would cost an exorbitant, ridiculous amount of money. And the upwards of 200 denarii, or at least about a half year's paycheck at the very least, to buy enough food to feed every man, woman, and child in attendance that day. A number that is far greater than 5,000, because we're only told there's 5,000 men. There ain't no mention of the wives or the children or the relatives or the family groups of these men who are in attendance. The more likely estimate scholars believe is that there's probably in the ballpark of 20,000 people there. A little less than a quarter of the capacity at Memorial Stadium. Go Big Red. That's a lot of people. And Jesus is asking his disciples on the fly, in the middle of nowhere, to feed all of them. And then the way the synoptics tell it, the disciples somehow manage to find, you know what it is, the measly five loaves and two fish. Seemingly they could scrounge up on short, short notice, out of the blue, these resources, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, don't elaborate on where or how the disciples found the minuscule amount of food. They just do. And that may surprise most of you that know this story backwards and forwards because you know where they got the food, don't you? We could swear, right, that there is a missing person here, that there is a boy, right? We're told, we know there's a boy with the five loaves and two fish. Well, this is where John steps in, the often unique voice among the quartet of gospel writers. John interjects and offers some details about that day that the author gospel writers just seemingly gloss over. Almost as if he was waiting in the wings to make his grand entrance. As if right on cue, John says that the disciples are scrambling to solve their catering problem when Andrew brings forward a boy who happened to have five barley loaves and two fish. John's the only gospel to tell us where the disciples got the five loaves and two fish. Did you know that? He's also the only one to tell us what kind of bread it was. He specifies it was barley. Did you ever notice that? Barley was the cheapest, lowest quality of bread in Jesus' day. It wasn't Sara Lee. It was the generic brand. And when it says loaves, when I read that in my children's Bibles, I pictured big, hearty loaves of bread that I'd find at the grocery store. That's what the stock photos would lead you to believe. In reality, there were probably these much smaller, flat, pancake-looking biscuits, or maybe we would say wafers. And to add a little flavor to your dry barley biscuit, you'd want to eat it with something, probably, maybe, I don't know, a fish, for instance. 
That's why the boy has with them a couple of fish, these small, probably salted, cured, what today are called kinneret sardines, common in the sea that Jesus is preaching beside. Kinneret is just the modern word for Galilee. This boy ain't as big of an eater as we've probably been led to believe. When I heard the story as a kid, this sounded like a, an enormous, elaborate meal. This sounded like a lot of food, but I've since learned that this ain't the lavish seafood meal you find to get to go at Red Lobster along with the Cheddar Bay biscuits. This is the equivalent today of a brown bag lunch you'd send with your kids to school. Now, I like to imagine, because we're going to have to use our imaginations a little, friends, because the text doesn't elaborate on who this kid is or what he's doing here or where he got his lunch. we got to read between the lines a little bit, make some educated guesses. I'm going to do that if that's all right with you. I'm going to do it anyway, whether you give me your permission or not. But I like to imagine that this mother, his mother, packed his lunch for him earlier that day. I think that's a safe assumption. The original Greek emphasizes this is a little boy, so he's a young boy, so I have to imagine that he had some assistance in acquiring the five loaves and the two fish. That before he left his house, someone, again his mother, maybe his grandmother, lovingly assembled what perhaps his father either fished out of the sea himself or bought at the market. His mother diligently baked the bread in the oven the night before, salted the fish to keep them fresh because there ain't no refrigerators back then. And then as, his, as her son's about to just run out the door, his mom has to pull him aside and, and he, she puts in his little satchel the five biscuits and the two fish, reminding her son to keep good care of it because it's his only food for later that day. And maybe after his, giving his mom a kiss on the cheek, he bolts out the door as kids do. I like to imagine that the little boy winds up at Jesus' seaside, hillside revival meeting because maybe he knows a little bit about Jesus. Maybe he's heard through the grapevine the stories and the legends about Jesus of Nazareth. Maybe he knows Jesus has a heart for children. He's not like all the other rabbis that discard children. He is a receptive of children. I actually like the direction the TV show The Chosen goes with this. Have you ever seen this show? It's a new, relatively new, well-made, dramatized version of Jesus' life. They actually imagine that the little boy is previously acquainted with Jesus, that he is someone who's experienced actually a healing by the hands of Jesus in an earlier episode. He actually returns the next episode, and he wants to repay Jesus for his kindness. And so he gives the five loaves and the two fish out of gratitude, out of thanksgiving for Jesus, for all that Jesus has done for him. That's not a bad guess. Maybe that's probably true. Maybe. text doesn't tell us. Somehow this boy winds up there that day. And I like to think, I like to think, that took a great deal of courage for him to part with his lunch that day that the meal that he was blessed with and likely told to steward, to not give it away to some stranger, but to hold on to it and to eat it for his own nourishment. Because it's expensive for him and his family. Barley was the bread of the poor. John's telling us that this kid and his family, they don't make a lot of money. This kid's probably not blessed like a lot of us, including myself, that always knew where our next meal was going to come. He wasn't blessed with that luxury. This is a big deal for him to give up his lunch. This isn't a flippant decision for this boy to give his food up that he has for the rest of the day, but he decides to do it anyway. And this may not sound like much of a sacrifice to you, but it was to him. He was willing to go hungry if it meant helping Jesus. 
He wasn't like everybody else that day, I think. The crowds that are there hoping for a handout from Jesus. He's not like Philip and the rest of the disciples that are calculating a way to fix this problem. No, he has simply brought everything he has to Jesus, even if it costs him personally. And, the, and this little secret is only known between him and Jesus. And only the naivety of a child could have thought his five loaves and two fish were going to make any difference that day. The disciples are probably thinking to themselves, this is just a drop in the bucket. This is hardly a dent at all. Wonders, wonders if the disciples aren't snickering when Matthew or Andrew brings him up to Jesus. Or maybe some of them are embarrassed that this is the best that they could do. I picture in my mind Andrew sheepishly, if not jokingly, telling Jesus, well, we got this little boy with these five barley biscuits and two sardines. What good is this going to do for any of these people? It would take a miracle to feed these people. But childlike faith or innocent good intentions is something Jesus seems to commend, if not encourage, among his followers particularly among the adults who think they know and can control everything. I tell you the truth, Jesus said, unless you become like little children, you will never get into the kingdom of heaven. Anyone who becomes as humble as a little child is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven. Jesus isn't the little bit, little bit phased or pessimistic about this boy's offering. In fact, he gets right down to business, almost as if this was exactly what he was looking for that day. He sets everyone down, and I imagine giving a little playful little wink to the boy, with the boy with maybe this big, broad smile on his face. As Jesus takes that ordinary, generic brand bread out of the bag, he gives thanks to God, blessing them for their daily bread, and he begins to distribute it to everyone. And then he does the same with the fish, taking and blessing and distributing. I wish I could see the look on the boy's face each time Jesus did that. As he watched Jesus reach into his satchel over and over again and repeatedly have another loaf or another fish in his hand. It must have been like nowadays watching a magician pull a rabbit out of the hat or those kids watching Mary Poppins pull that hat rack out of her carpet bag. Y'all may be too young to know what Mary Poppins is. I wonder if this boy thought to himself, wait a minute, time out. I could have swore... My mom only packed five biscuits in there. Jesus has now pulled over half a baker's dozen, and he keeps going. How much is in that bag? Where's all this coming from? I thought my mom gave me two fish. Jesus has pulled out a school of fish. What on earth is happening? Because, I mean, Jesus just kept pulling out more and more food out of this bag until the people have experienced something they rarely experienced, being completely full. Folks could have had seconds if they wanted to, but no one could eat another bite. And to the boy's surprise, I believe he notices leftovers scattered across that hillside, extras. So much so that Jesus has to ask his disciples to take baskets and gather up all the fragments because we can't waste any. And when they're done, they each have a basket to themselves. There's 12 baskets left over, each of them to carry something all from those five loaves and the two fish. This boy had a front row seat to one of the most amazing, one of the most memorable, miraculous events Jesus ever did, at least according to the gospel writers. A 19th century preacher, Arthur John Gossip, imagines that later that night the boy ran home 
that he burst through the front door with a huge grin on his face, beaming, his cheeks flush with color, excitedly recounting to his parents every detail of the miracle that I and Jesus did that day. And he's not wrong. That boy had a part to play in Jesus' miracle that day. It wasn't a big part. He didn't do any of the heavy lifting, and Jesus could likely have done it without him. But still, it was meaningful. He didn't have much to offer. But what he did, he gave. What little it was. And Jesus found in that the materials and the ingredients to make a miracle happen. One commentator actually thinks there were two miracles that afternoon. One was Jesus feeding 5,000 plus people. The other was that the little boy hadn't already eaten lunch that day. (laughs) As I said in my experience, almost every time I hear this story, whether it's in the children's Bible I read, my mom read to me, or the faith-based movies I watch, or when people casually rehearse this story, I hear it John's way. Every time someone tells this story, they mention the cameo appearance of this boy who volunteered his lunch that day. I think that's quite a legacy for only appearing in one verse in the Bible. But that's what's on the table when you partner with Jesus. When Jesus takes your lunch, that silly little seemingly inconsequential parts in God's story aren't so easily forgotten, that God works at them and he works through them and he works with them to do immeasurably more than we could ever ask or imagine, Paul will tell the Ephesians. God can even produce miracles out of that. Friends, I want to tell you this morning that out beyond these doors is a world full of hungry people whether that's spiritually or physically or emotionally. Folks are starving for something this world can't give them, but only Jesus can give them. And they might show up on the hillside, they might not, but Jesus stands on the periphery of this hungry, starving generation, moved with compassion for them because they are like sheep without a shepherd. And he's still looking at his disciples, his followers, his church, and he's telling us to give them something. And instead of frantically looking for answers outside of ourselves or inside our culture, what if it looked like if we looked into our own satchels that we carry with us every day at the loaves and the fish we already have that we were saving for later that Jesus, I think, needs right now? What would it look like for us, church, to respond the way this boy did? With childlike faith, taking our five loaves and two fish and simply laying them at the master's feet to use to quench the hunger of this world. I'm wondering if Jesus is looking for new people that just like you and me, with our loaves and our fish, that, we can, that he can take and bless and multiply and use to feed the multitudes. If God could do it without us, he doesn't intend to do it without us. He wants to collaborate with us. He wants to partner with us, not as slaves, but as friends. Will you give him, friends, your lunch this morning? You may be hesitant, apprehensive, Perhaps that boy was too, seeing the amount of people that were there that day, the thousands of hungry faces, hearing the thousands of stomachs grumbling, the frantic disciples, and it's daunting, and it's intimidating, and it's scary, giving Jesus your lunch, and maybe a lot of questions will come up to the surface level of your mind. What good will my measly five loaves and fish do? It's just a drop in the bucket. What What good can I do? 
Or you know what? I bet someone else in this crowd with more experience than me or more education than me or more passion than me or has better fish and loaves than me can offer to Jesus their lunch so I don't have to. Or maybe the disciples will eventually figure it out and they'll take care of it. No one needs to get involved but them. Or maybe I need this daily bread to survive. What if I don't have something for later? Does Jesus care about that? Maybe you're saying something similar this morning, but the boy doesn't. Instead, he has just this childlike faith. He takes his offering, sacrifices it to Jesus. He gives Jesus his lunch, and the rest is history. When Jesus takes whatever it is we bring him, whether it's our time, or our talents, or our resources, or our energy, or our finances, or our presence, whatever it is, that like this boy, we're courageously willing to part with, we're willing to sacrifice, we're willing to surrender, however meager we might believe it is, however insignificant, or inconsequential, or ordinary we might have convinced ourselves it is, that warm smile that you give to the stranger as you're passing by, the kindness that you give to the bank teller, or the waitress, or the cashier? Do we not realize how Jesus can take just simple, good old-fashioned common sense and kindness and multiply that in the lives of people that may just be having a bad day that day, but you brighten that day for them? Maybe that text message you send to someone to brighten their day, just out of the blue. That phone call that you were going to give to that person, I just, I don't want to interrupt them. You may never know how your words of encouragement that you write in that card that you send to someone, what that means for that person in that season of their life, you may never know, but it does multiple things when you do that. Maybe it's honoring your parents and your grandparents. Raising children as God would want you to do. Yes, that includes cooking. Yes, that includes folding laundry. Yes, that means making lunches for them. The responsibilities that we do to be godly men and women as we parent and as we take care of our parents and our grandparents, I think that is the five loaves we can give to Jesus sometimes. Maybe it's showing up and visiting people the physical presence you could give to them, those that are stuck at nursing homes, those that are homebound right now for various reasons, maybe you can show up to them and it's just your presence and your listening ear that people could have because they just don't have anybody else to talk to. But you don't realize how that can just multiply inside them. Maybe it's praying for people, having them on your heart and mind. You intercede for them before the Father when they can't, but you can praying for them in that moment as you're getting ready to go into surgery, the nurses that are going to operate on you that are maybe nervous, scared out of their minds to work with you, but you're willing to pray for them because you have confidence in your God. I think that speaks volumes. Maybe it is physically your lunch. Maybe you need to take a friend out to lunch this week. Maybe that would mean a lot to that person to just sit down with someone. Maybe it is a monetary thing the ties that you put in the offering plate that go to the ministries of this church or maybe go to other organizations that we want to help and support, missionaries that we want to help and support. Maybe it's one of those things that are on your hearts today. I think it's Dave Johnson who sings this song, right? If I had a dollar, if I had a dime, if I had more money, if I had more time. Come on, you know what Dave sings. Come on. I'd live one, if I lived 103, I'd give it all to Jesus for what he's done for me. Come on, people. You know that song. Maybe it's those warm meals 
You don't realize how far your casseroles and your cooked potatoes and the pizzas that you order at Clevenger's and those brownies that you make as part of that meal train that you give to someone that's in need or someone that is grieving or someone that's recovering from an injury or an illness. You don't realize the links those go to. You may never see it, but it helps those people out in multiple ways. You're touching lives when you do that. And I can speak to personal experience about that recently, the multiple ways I felt loved through those meals, friends. Maybe it's helping someone out physically, manual labor, things that we break a sweat for, helping someone out in their yard, shoveling snow, moving boxes. People need help sometimes when they're not able to do that. Can we offer our strength, however measly it might be, to just help them out a little bit? Maybe that's the five loaves and two fish that we can do. Or maybe it's taking place in the different ministries that we have happening here on campus. You're willing to carve out time in your busy schedule to come serve in the various capacities and ministries that are happening at church, maybe on Wednesday nights at Awana, helping children learn how to read the Bible, giving them a nice meal through our Food Food for Kids ministry. And yes, you have to put up with their antics and their shenanigans and all of that energy. Trust me, friends, I know. But those kids, maybe what they need is just an adult in their lives that loves them and cares for them and is willing to listen for them because they may not have that anywhere else. A safe place for them to go where they can learn about Jesus. Jesus can take all of our effort and all of our time and all of our energy and even our sanity at times and multiply it. He's planting and sowing seeds in the hearts of different people all around us, and there's a chance for them to grow. We just have to be a part of that. We may never see it, but who knows the re- how much he'll harvest and reap? Who knows where, how far our food and lo- will go? We don't need to worry about the multiplication because it's good because I ain't very good at math. That's Jesus' job to multiply. He can handle the math. We just need to concentrate on being faithful and willing and able. And who knows, we might be close enough to witness one of those miracles every now and then, to taste and see that the Lord is good, as the psalmist says. The burden of multiplication is not on us, it's on Jesus. Our concern isn't numbers or math, it's in faithfulness. And whenever we hand over whatever it is you got, Jesus is capable of taking that and blessing it and multiplying it to nourish and sustain and help people greater than we ever, ever ask or imagine. Whether that be multiple people all at once or perhaps one person in multiple ways, whatever our loaves and fish might be capable of in the hands of Jesus, it's capable of handling 5,000-fold or more. When Jesus takes your lunch, things happen. We may not always see the miracle right away, or even ever, sometimes we do, but when Jesus takes our lunch, miracles happen. And before you limit a miracle to some sort of supernatural, fantastical phenomena, don't forget that sometimes the miracles of Jesus were as simple and as basic and as ordinary as someone's tummy not grumbling anymore because they're full. Tish Harrison Warren says, Ordinary love, anonymous and unnoticed as it is, is the substance of peace on earth, the currency of God's grace in our daily lives. But I think it's important to remember what this boy had. Even though he may steal the show, he is not the show. It's somebody else's. And he's the real star that we cannot upstage and should not upstage. Henry Nouwen said it best, it is Jesus who heals, not I. Jesus who speaks words of truth, not I. Jesus who is Lord, not I, and I will add this morning, 
It is Jesus who multiplies, not I. We are not the healers. We are not the reconcilers. We are not the givers of life. Now one goes on to say, we are sinful, broken, vulnerable people who need as much care as anybody else we care for. But the mystery of ministry is that we have been chosen to make our limited and very conditional love the gateway for the unlimited and unconditional love of God. We are the conduits of God's grace. God's grace works for us. It works in us, but it also works through us sometimes. And Jesus has insiders strategically stationed and positioned in this world, all over this world, to be vessels and instruments of his grace. That includes you, and that includes me, wherever we are. And through giving Jesus our lunch, our five loaves and two fish, the grace of God can pass through our hands and our feet and our words and our actions, our money and our possessions, our time and our talents to touch the brokenhearted, to heal the wounds of this world, to bring light into this darkness, all in the name and by the power of Jesus. And I'm not saying that each time Jesus takes our lunch, it will be as memorable as this kid, but I'm confident it will be no less impactful in its own way. When we give Jesus our lunch, the only one who needs to know is him. And that crowd of 5,000 plus, I wonder how many of them knew a miracle was happening right under their very noses. Did you ever think about that? As they're enjoying the simple and bountiful meal, I bet they hardly had a clue or even noticed that small little kid with the brown bag lunch. The disciples did, but more importantly, Jesus did. We don't give our Jesus, we don't give Jesus our lunch looking for our own glory, a pat on the bat, an attaboy, an girl, a jewel in our crown in heaven for people to praise our wisdom and our resources and our stewardness of our savings accounts or our means. Nor should we be offended if no one notices, if no one acknowledges or says anything or even cares, if we don't get any credit or recognition at all or blessings from God. But Jesus knows where that bread and fish came from. And that's all that matters, friends. When you get to the needy, Jesus said, do not announce it with trumpets as the hypocrites do to be honored by others. But when you get to the needy, do not let your left hand know what your right hand is doing so that your giving may be in secret. And your heavenly Father who sees what you've done in secret will reward you. Friends, I don't think Jesus is going to forcibly take your lunch from you. It's yours. But I wonder how different this world would be if we were inspired by the likes of this boy if we walked in the footsteps of him this morning, offering Jesus our lunch, not the food you're about to eat when you leave this place, but your own kind of five loaves and two fish, not looking for accolades, not looking for praise, not looking for credit, not looking for a step up, but looking to spread the love of Jesus in this world. That the offerings we place, whatever they might be for Jesus, when we partner with him, we may see the multitude of ways our measly five loaves and two fish can change this world. 